my life I has to fight All's my life I Hard times like yeah Bad trips like yeah Nazareth I'm f***ed up homie you f***ed up But if God got us then we gon' be alright Welcome back, everyone. Um, this is Maria, and I have a special guest with me today. Can you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, my name is Alicia, and I taught third grade for five years, and now I am an interventionist. Cool. And fun fact, everyone, um, Alicia and I actually recorded an episode together before that never saw the light of day. And it was actually a really amazing episode, and I was super bummed that nobody got a chance to hear it. But I'm really glad that we get a chance to record something else. So welcome back, Alicia. Thanks. Glad to be here. And this, I think, officially marks season two. So welcome back, everyone, to season two. That's what they say, you know, like on NPR. (laughs) (laughs) Glad to be here for season two. Um, Today's episode is about learning loss, which is something that a lot of people all over the world in education have really been thinking a lot about um, as a result of lockdown and modified instruction and, you know, a lot of kids missing school due to either getting COVID or being exposed to COVID. And so as two educators who work in a similar area, but also have very different populations that we serve, I thought it would be really cool for Alicia to share her experience as a classroom teacher and as an interventionist. And just to be clear with everyone about what an interventionist is, can you tell a little bit uh, to us what an interventionist is, Alicia? Yeah, of course. Um, So I run uh, small groups um, supporting kids in in reading and math. So it's for students who don't have special education services, but are still below grade level in reading and math. Um, I run small groups with them a couple times a week to try to catch them up on on things they need to be able to access that grade level content. And this is not, to be clear with everyone, this is not special education. So this is just an an additional support for students who are approaching grade level but are not quite there yet. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Thanks for sharing. So let's talk about what remote learning was. Remote learning is something that a lot of teachers were doing all over the country. And unfortunately, I feel like it became a very politicized thing where like some states refused to close their schools and they were teaching in person still through the pandemic and other states refused to open their schools. And so for a lot of us, like I know at my school, I operated 100% out of my home office. And so I taught um, normal school hours online and I had a schedule just like I would have had in person. The program that we used to teach was called Microsoft Teams and kids logged in and they would participate. There were functions to raise their hands. I could mute everyone's microphone. Um, That was kind of what it looked like in my school and in my classroom. And like I said, there were windows of time where each subject was taught. So we would take a break in between the lessons and They'd go to lunch and then they would have PE. So the PE teacher would log in and they would go to that class. So it was pretty structured and organized. What did online learning look like for you, Alicia? 
Um, yeah, I think it was similar. I know at the start of the school year, there was sort of the expectation that we were going to run it, <clears throat> excuse me, very much like a like a normal school day and sort of like try to have kids on, on the computer screen for the full, you know, six hours or whatever, maybe apart from a lunch break. I think pretty quickly everyone sort of came to the agreement that that was not developmentally appropriate for most elementary school students. And I think my schedule sort of shifted to look like, um, uh, I think it was like an hour or two in the morning that like we all met and I sort of explained their assignments later in the day. And then I spent the second half of the day um, meeting with small groups or individual students that sort of needed support to get that independent work done. Um, and I think that that tended to work much better for for everyone <laughs> rather than just having expecting, you know, 28 year olds to be on a computer for five hours a day. So does that mean that you didn't necessarily have like windows of time when you had to teach certain subjects? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to remember exactly what my schedule was, but we didn't have windows of time. We had to teach certain subjects. Um, I think it sort of looked like. Yeah, we like sort of did a morning meeting. We did uh, some sort of lesson um, in math, some sort of lesson in reading, and then they had independent work for for the rest of the things. Oh, interesting. I bought a, a document camera like almost as soon as the lockdown started. I use that thing every single day when I was teaching online um, just because it created that like classroom feel, especially for math, you know, when I was like modeling problems and doing practice problems with them. And then I would like send them to on their way. But I think our school was really, really um, pretty strict about making sure that certain subjects were taught each day at a certain time, which is like aligned Mm -hmm. with MPSS, you know? Okay. Yep. So it's interesting that um, in different schools, there were, there were requirements or maybe expectations around like how many instructional minutes were being met. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it was just like really different. Like I think uh, for, for my students who maybe had family at home who were able to provide instruction for them, like actually the most useful thing was not for them to be on the computer trying to learn over teams. Cause I think, you know, there, there are certain ways that, that, yeah, like it's just so much better to be actually with a person. So I think for those kids who I knew like had family support, like them spending all of that time on the computer with me was not the best use of their time. And sort of having that flexibility allowed me to focus my time on on those kids who, you know, didn't have anything else. And so like meeting with me in that small group was going to be the only way they were going to get any support to sort of complete independent work or move forward with their learning. Um, so I think the flexibility was nice because, because of the ways that remote learning is pretty imperfect. What percentage <clears throat> of your class would you say logged in consistently like through the year? So I think because I was just sort of like the expectation was that like the morning time was like when I got everybody there. I think I pretty consistently got most students there. Um, I think there were probably like two or three students who I really struggled with attendance for um, for like that first section of the day. Um, And yeah, I would say I'd say that was pretty true. I'd say I probably had like three students who I almost never saw. And, you know, would like spend, you know, like would give them half an hour of the day that I was just supposed to be meeting with them. And even with that sort of schedule, I had a really hard time seeing them. Um, but for the most part, I was able to at least like, you know, other kids logged on, even if 
they never turned on their camera or unmuted themselves. <laughs> they were at least like there, although to the extent they were participating, um, varied. I, I would say for me, it was something kind of similar. Like I only had one student um, during the year when I taught completely remotely that I just couldn't get to participate. It was really, really difficult. There wasn't mm-hmm. a lot of family support and you know, we had conferences like virtual parent-teacher conferences. And even after parent-teacher conferences, I mean, there was an, a little bit of an uptick in participation for like a brief period of time. And then it went back to kind of like nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I, I only had one student. And to be clear, I the year that we taught remotely for the whole year, um, I that was my first year teaching in a not Title I school. Uh, Title I school, uh, to those who may not know, it's when 75%, is it 75 of the class, of the school qualifies for free and reduced lunch? That sounds high. I think it might be a little, yeah, I was thinking it might be lower than that, maybe 50%, but I'm not 100% certain. Okay. There's a certain redu- uh, percentage of students who qualify for free and reduced lunch um, in order for a school to qualify as a Title I or fall into the Title I category. And once it is a Title I school, there are additional resources and supports and kind of interventions. There's an additional budget that the school receives for um, support staff and other things like retention programs and attendance programs when a school has been identified as Title I because it is uh, recognized that the school is a higher needs population. So the school that I was teaching at during the lockdown year, which would be the 2020 to 2021 school year, was not a Title I. It was a pretty um, well-off school. And so the materials, the access to materials, um, the family support, the family engagement, access to the internet, none of those were really issues. Is that something that stood out to you or anything that was challenging for any of the families in your class? Yeah, definitely. I had quite a few students. Uh, access to the internet was was a challenge. Um, I think the other thing is um, we had lots of students who whose families were, you know, just um, working the whole day, not able to take time off. And so you had a lot of these eight-year-olds who were either home alone during that time or um, maybe like had an older sibling who was supposed to be in charge of them, but that older sibling was also supposed to be in their own remote classes. And I think I just saw that being sort of more prevalent than some of my better off students who maybe had a parent who was able to work remotely or able to take time off or able to um, just be, be there to provide support for that student made it a lot easier for those students. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the things that was like the most heartbreaking. You know, there was no blueprint for this whole situation because I don't think we've ever at least in the past hundred years, we haven't been in a situation like this. And so there was this sudden scramble all over the country for people to make technology accessible for kids who either may not have a lot of tech savvy, you know, their, their families may not be able to support them with those tech devices. The year that we started lockdown, so the 2019-2020 school year, there was like no real plan and so, mm-hmm. like I said, I I started out of school um, 
in 2020 where there was like a very structured plan. But the year before that, I was at another school where um, it was just kind of like, okay, like upload your stuff on Sunday night. And, um, you know, on Monday at eight o'clock or whatever the time was, I can't remember anymore. The kids were supposed to have access to all these materials that they're doing online through the week. But like, they're not really being graded on it. And It just felt crazy when everything first started. And I really felt really bad for other teachers um, because it was kind of this like hurry up and wait game, you know, like we'd have staff meetings online where they basically would announce that they still haven't decided anything yet. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then they also were having us like have these class meetings where like, I don't know. Not a lot was happening. I, I It just felt to me crazy. I don't know. what Did you feel like it was kind of all over the place in the beginning? Oh, yeah. Those first couple months like that, that was essentially from, from March through the end of the school year. I don't think any, any teaching or learning happened because students didn't have laptops. We, you know, I, I personally didn't feel super comfortable like doing things online that like, only you know a handful of my kids would even be able to do um and so we wound up like I think I had a handful of class meetings like a handful over the course of like all of those months um and then like sent home some packets that you know never came back and like maybe some families chose to do with their kids and um that that I think was like a, a complete wash <laughs> those first several months. And there was a clearer plan the, the following school year in terms of what remote learning should look like, at least in theory. But um, but yeah, I think I think at the end of the day, it, I feel like it was sort of universally felt that it just it, it wasn't it wasn't as good as being in school in person. Like it wasn't the best way to support students. And it was was an, an, a largely like ineffective and insufficient like stopgap measure. Um, I feel like that's when the learning loss really began. It was like that March, you know, when we first went mm-hmm. on lockdown, it was like, okay, so those last three months of the school year were pretty much a total wash. And I wasn't as concerned about that group of kids only because I feel like the, the really core part of information, you know, like the, key skills that kids need are always introduced at the beginning of the school year. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we had those first few months with them all the way up to March. That group of kids had their like really core skills pretty much down at that point. Right. And I think the groups that were most impacted were the, the following year because it was completely online. And if you weren't accessing online learning, then it was a full year of, of education or instruction that didn't happen. And I think the other thing, excuse me, that was kind of weird was that like keeping in mind that there are already kids who were essentially not at grade level. You know, it's not like everyone was at grade level and then we all slid back. Um, I was reading this article um, in New York Times that said that nine-year-olds lost the equivalent of two decades of progress in math and reading, which means that right now, um, based on the data, nine-year-olds or or what we would call like fourth graders are um, academically where 
our country was 20 years ago. And so 20 years of progress has been lost. And 20 years ago, the United States was actually not doing very well in education. We had really fallen far behind. And that was around the time when Common Core standards were rolled out so that we could create a more universal system to identify key skills and standards that we wanted kids in certain grade levels to have. So I would say that 20 years of of instructional progress being lost is pretty significant. And I was really glad that fourth grade was the year, one of the years that they measured. It was fourth grade and eighth grade, I think. And they said that they said that there was a ton of progress lost in math, but not as much progress was lost in reading. And it wasn't really clear why. Um, I think maybe because math instruction is so, you know, when you do need extra support, that proximity, like what you were talking about, those small groups really Mm -hmm. make a big difference. Whereas with reading, it's not as um, precise. It's not like either you get it or you don't. There are those like gray areas where okay, this person is on their way to getting in and we just want to kind of make some adjustments in their explanations or maybe go a little bit more in depth on the inferences that they're able to make. Whereas with math, like kind of either you know how to do it or you don't. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, I don't know, I think I see this, especially as an interventionist, like with reading, like there's there's very clear like continuum that you are doing. And I imagine that it would, you know, it's easier to support as an interventionist, like cool, like these are the sounds or the specific skills that you need to work on. And we can sort of work on that in a smooth continuum. Whereas with math, you're like, okay, you're below grade level in math. Is it because you don't have number sense, but also like you're, you, you're having trouble counting, but also like, you know, like, do we just practice those patterns or do we practice single digit addition or do we practice like how to do the multiplication standard algorithm? There's all of these distinct skill sets that don't line up in one clear continuum in the same way that that reading does. Um, you know, there's like a hundred individual skills that are often related, but also like very distinct and need to be learned one at a time, almost from scratch. You know, if you're learning multiplication, that's going to be an entirely different process than like when you were learning subtraction. And and so I think it's the variety of skill sets that like kids need to be exposed to it makes it a little more challenging for families to support. I also think it's kind of interesting because that is really hard to address online, you know, Doing the diagnostics, doing the progress monitoring, and identifying how you're going to do that type of one-on-one, really individualized support on the internet is not easy, particularly when you're working with, like you said, very young kids. You know, we're not talking about high school students. We're talking about kids who are six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. I can't really even imagine what that would look like successfully, like really structured online. Um, And one of the things that I read in that New York Times article was that as a result of learning law, well, as a result of online learning, the gap between students who are high versus low performers widened even more significantly. So students who were already needing a lot of academic support fell even further behind and needed even more support when they came back in person. And the kids mm-hmm. who were high, high academically high performing kind of stayed high performing and continued coasting along. And I think one of the things I heard you mention, which is definitely something that was true for my class at the time as well, was that there was a lot more familial 
hands-on support for students who were academically high performing. You know, there were a lot of stay-at-home moms. There were a lot of parents who could just kind of like, you know, they were working remotely so they could take time and just make sure their kids were all set up or do whatever needs to be done for their children. And they're making lunch, the kids go have lunch and they create these really structured days for the kids so that it's, it feels very much like a a routine, you know, they had that privilege of creating routines for their children and making themselves available um, so that their kids could continue being high performers. Um, and the students that didn't have it, it was really obvious that they weren't getting that same type of support, not because their families didn't want to give it to them, but maybe because their families didn't have the privilege of taking time off work or like sitting down right next to their child and monitoring their online learning or like just going downstairs and cooking lunch for all the kids. You know, that's definitely um, a lifestyle that most of us can't accommodate. So that's just something that stands out to me, um, the the gap widening. And I think that's what they were talking about, that 20-year slide back. So my mm-hmm. question now, Alicia, is do you think we should be concerned about learning loss? Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I think we it is like an important thing to notice I think it's also an important thing to remember like there are reasons and we like we know why it happened um and I I would imagine that there there are certain groups of kids that I would imagine being more affected of it like when I look at um the current second graders that is a group that I think I see sort of the most impact from because their kindergarten year was was fully remote and for many of those kids they'd never been in school before so I think that having your first year of school being a remote year of school like was really disorienting and I think for a lot of those kids they didn't get much out of that experience as kindergartners um, and then last year I think for a number of those kids was really just sort of like uh, coming back from crisis mode um, there were so many kids who just like didn't you know, they'd never been in school before, didn't know how to like be safe or um, sort of like those basic school behaviors, I think was what most of last year was spent on. And now is the first year that they're actually trying to like get an education. And it is second grade. (laughs) And, you know, they're supposed to be readers. And, uh, you know, I have quite a few second graders who still don't know their letters, because they have never been taught them (laughs) until now. And, so we're starting from from that scratch. And I think like for that group of kids, like I think we should we should take note that there are a great many of them that are going to need a lot more. And we should be really intentionally surpri- providing more support. I think for some of the older students, like for for the fifth graders, they sort of like they knew what school was before and they missed a little bit. But I see them sort of like sliding back in to to something that's familiar. Um, and there are those sort of gaps but it feels like those gaps feel fill inable in in a way that feels a little different I think for the younger kids who really miss some of those super foundational years um so yes I think we we should be conscious of it and we should be thoughtful in how we're we're supporting kids um and and not penalizing them for you know something that was out of their control in terms of like you know ability to access whatever based on based on their learning or achievement or whatever um how how concerned we should be I think it's more of just like how do how do we respond to that as adults to the truth of the situation and and the situation that these kids were put in, in in no fault of their own um and to be thoughtful in our response to that 
It's interesting you say that. I feel kind of like, you know, immediately, like once we did online learning, there was immediately like this discussion of learning loss. Like children are losing learning. They're they're falling behind and we're going to need to figure out what to do about that. And that's going to definitely fall on your shoulders. Like the, that was mm-hmm. the dialogue almost immediately. Like I would say at the beginning of the school year in 2020. Granted, like I said, I, um, I am working with a population that has uh, a lot of access to academic support, either through private tutoring or um, parents who have the time and resources to kind of like pre-teach or review with their children. So I'm not seeing a ton of academic loss. Um, I am seeing a lot of kids who social emotionally need a lot of gap filling. And that kind of goes to what you were saying, which is just that like, a lot of the kids just are not developmentally where we would typically expect children that age to be um, using, like you said, safe bodies, you know, understanding that you can't hit people, understanding that no one is going to be cleaning up your messes, or even just like having coping skills for stressful or slightly um, stress-inducing situations. Like, you know, thinking about coping strategies on how you can manage yourself when you have a big assessment or a big project that's coming up and not completely crumbling or the teacher not needing to like call home because you're having a lot of meltdowns. You know, I've seen a lot of mental health related issues pop up uh, with students because they're just having a very difficult time coping with some of the stresses of being in school. And that looks like sometimes, you know, not getting along with other kids, other times, you know, falling apart when they're stressed out, um, needing a lot more alone time. Like you said, needing more breaks. You know, I've, I've noticed that they burn out and they get tired super, super quick. So those were things that have that really stood out to me. And I would say it has been challenging because as a classroom teacher, you know, of course, I do give social emotional support when I can. But primarily, my responsibility is to focus on academic support and academic progress so that they can get ready for fifth grade and after that middle school. And typically with fourth grade students, they have some kind of coping strategies and and different things that they've learned over time that they can refer to to help them with some of the more challenging things and um, they don't really have any strategies. So that is something that concerns me a lot more than the academic piece because, you know, realistically, there's no way I can really teach someone something that they missed a whole year of, in my opinion, to expect a fourth grade teacher to go back to second grade content and like teach that to them again. I don't have the capacity to teach a variety of grade levels, um, especially when you have more than 25 students in your classroom. But what does concern me and stand out to me is the social, emotional, or personal development that a lot of students still need that can be really, really challenging to um manage when you have a lot of fourth graders that are very much behaving like babies. And some of that is because they didn't have an opportunity to develop those skills. You know, they weren't around peers. And I think the other reason for that is 
that they spent a lot of time around their families who may have maybe babied them a little bit, or if you're around your mom a lot, your mom might, you know, your mom is supporting you differently than your teacher would or your classmates would. Um, So that is something that is on my mind a lot. And unfortunately, as someone who has instructional minutes that I have to meet as a general education teacher, I really can't take a ton of time out of daily instruction to really, really sit down and have the types of conversations that I wish we could have to help them along social emotionally. Yeah, no, I hear that. I think that's the social emotional needs are also also on my mind a lot. And I'm, I'm saying that lots of kids are needing more support than you than you might expect for, you know, kids at that given age. Um, yeah, uh, you know, I think if if there are any parents that listen to this, that's one thing that I would encourage parents to really, really work with their kids on is to talk about coping strategies, talk about how to manage and like really work yourself and coach yourself through moments that can be challenging. And of course, for kids, teachers do support them. But what I've seen, and I'm sure you probably have seen something similar, is that some of the students need an overwhelming amount of social emotional support that would almost be it would almost require one-on-one help yeah yeah I think I think I'm seeing that as well the number of kids who need need attention at any given point is is often greater than the number of adults in a given space and so the more students have those sort of independent coping mechanisms ability to solve their own problems with their peers or manage stressful situations um, but that is a huge need right now Yeah. So my final question is, are you seeing that kids are retaining things that count as like gap filling instruction? Yeah, I think one one thing about being an interventionist is that really is my job to be gap filling. That is essentially what I'm doing. I'm taking kids who are not uh, at grade level and like going back and reteaching whatever it is they need, (laughs) whether they're in second grade and they need to practice letter sounds, even though that's a kindergarten skill or, you know, third graders, we are, we're practicing just counting, which is also one of those kindergarten skills because they didn't, they didn't get those skills yet. Um, And so I really have, have the freedom to, to do that. My job is to help kids get non-grade level content. And I think that, I'm really glad that that I am in that role because I think it's really important right now. I think it's really stressful as a classroom teacher because you have grade level content that you're supposed to be teaching. Um, You have a full year worth of grade levels content that you're supposed to be teaching and you can't also teach a second year worth of grade levels content to your students. And so... I think that is really challenging and I um, am lucky that I'm in a position where I am able to support classroom teachers to be the one to provide gap filling to a great number of those students. Um, But I think it's really hard if you don't necessarily have that support um, person to be able to do that with your kids. I think I'm seeing retention and I think I'm seeing progress, but you know, I think I, I see most of my students for 20 minutes, three times a week. Um, And I see, I work with over 50 students in the school. And so that's sort of the frequency with which I'm able to see kids. Um, And although I am seeing progress, you know, if I have a second grader who's still working on a kindergarten level, you know, it it is unrealistic to expect that with that sort of frequency at the end of the year, I'm going to catch them up to where they need to be in third grade. They're not going to make three years of growth this year. Um, And so although I see students making progress and I do see that retention, I don't think that 
uh, it's necessarily enough that all of their gaps will be filled by the end of this year or by the end of next year. And so uh, what, what do we do to sort of um, combat that in a more complete way? I don't necessarily have an answer for. Um, and I think that, that continues to be something that is challenging. I think a lot about gap filling, not just in relation to learning loss, but, you know, for any student that needs support getting to grade level. I think one of the things that stands out to me, Alicia, you know this statistic, and this is something that most teachers have heard, is that if a child is not academically at grade level by the end of third grade, every year they fall further and further behind and the likelihood that they'll ever catch up becomes smaller and smaller every year thereafter. Mm-hmm. And so... By the time students get to me, quite often, even before the pandemic, even before learning loss was a concern, you know, there were kids who were more than a year behind. And I think one of the things that has consistently caused learning loss or a need for gap filling um, for many students is attendance. You know, um, what I've seen is that the students who were not participating consistently in online learning, they're still not consistently coming to school. Attendance was an issue before. It became a huge issue during the pandemic. And I think a lot of families are having a hard time getting back on track uh, because it's still an issue even now for a lot of people. Not only are they one year behind, a lot of them are like maybe two and three years behind. Um, And so when I think about gap filling, I think gap filling is possible if the family is is involved and everyone is kind of on the same page about a very specific plan for that child. I do kind of resent the fact that like it falls on a teacher, only on the teacher and not there's no expectation around what the support is going to look like for the teacher to meet that need. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that's something that has become a little bit disappointing is that there has not been any plan. And, and this isn't just in the area where I work. I know that this is like a nationwide issue. There hasn't been any universal plan on what we're going to do to support students with gap filling. There's no initiative. There's no additional budget that we're receiving money for. There are no you know extra interventionists that are showing up to the school. And so although I think gap filling is necessary in order for students to have that opportunity to catch up and and perform at their personal best, I don't necessarily see a lot of change happening until it is addressed systemically. It can't just be like, oh, my class is doing this and our school is doing that. Right? Like it would have to be in education kind of federal level, like this is what we're going to do as a nation to support people who either missed instruction or um, for whatever reason did not have access to the instruction they needed online. And here's how we're going to support them so that they can at least access the content in the classroom in a way that's like developmentally appropriate. Unfortunately, I do not have the ears of our um, Secretary of Education. I think it is uh, Miguel Cardona, I believe. Um, you know, I also don't have Joe Biden on speed dial or Jill. Um, so, you know, if, if I had a chance to talk to them, that's what I would say. Um, I don't even have Governor Inslee's text message. Like, I, I would love to just like drop a little note and be like, hey, did you know that like I can't just do this by myself? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I know it's not that easy, right? Like I know it's not just like give me money, like – 
they have to secure the finances and all these kinds of things, right? But um, when I think about the quote unquote high performers and the quote unquote low performers and how this gap is widening and there's only so much time I have in the day. And like you said, we as teachers already have a curriculum, a set of skills that have to be taught what time in the day I'm able to address students who are not ready to access that content, the teacher, at least in my opinion or my perspective, you know, we're doing as much as we can, but there's only so much time in the day. So I don't know. There was no, like, I don't think that this conversation was just a matter of us finding a solution to learning loss. Cause you said really nicely that there is none, but I think making people aware of the fact that, there can't be a solution until there's a more systemic plan or support I think is important. Right. The solution can't just be that teachers do more. (laughs) That is too often a solution that, that is just like sort of given to society and, and, and and we can't, we can only do so much. (laughs) Yeah. And, and I think that there was already an issue around time commitment and Mm -hmm. um, workload. And I'm sure for you as, um, someone working in intervention, you know, the amount of platforms that we have to navigate now, and you know, it's not just email. Now we're like communicating on teams and we're communicating on outlook. Um, But anyway, those are just things to think about. And I'm so glad that we had a chance to have this conversation because it made me think a lot about um, what support could look like for kids and what it looks like in other places. And I hope you get to join us again, Alicia. This was really awesome. Thank you for coming. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on.